minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, and we are in our nine days format, and that means that the uh, the bulk of our programming during JM and the AM are the lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine. Uh, Rabbi Wine, uh, for us, uh, began a uh, lecture series yesterday entitled Jerusalem Geography. We are going to play the first in that series of lectures in its entirety, um, which we did not have the opportunity to do late yesterday. And then we'll continue with uh, plenty more here at JM and the AM. Rabbi Viral Wine, on the topic of Jerusalem geography, I remind you that his lectures, the entire series available by calling 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, Rabbi W-E-I-N. This uh, lecture series, which will uh, take place over, God willing, the next few months, uh, concerns itself with the streets of Yerushalayim. And if you know uh, the story of the streets of Yerushalayim, you know a lot. In fact, uh, all of Jewish history can be found in the streets and in the squares and the uh, traffic circles of Jerusalem. Tonight's lecture uh, concerns itself a street, the name of a street. In English, we call it Saladin, the Arabic name, which is the correct name, and which is the name of the street, is Salah ed-Din. And uh, it is a, a street that can be found when you uh, go out of the old city, if you go out Shar Shem, Damascus Gate, you turn right, that street is Suleiman Street, which runs parallel to the wall. We'll talk about Suleiman next Shabbat, uh, next Matzoi Shabbat, God willing. But the first main street that runs perpendicular, in other words, you make a left turn, that street is Salah al-Din, that's Saladin Street. And it's one of the major streets in uh, what is called East Jerusalem, and it's a very ancient street. The street uh, itself dates back to Crusader times, and the name was given after... Uh, Saladin defeated the Crusaders and captured Jerusalem. And in the usual modesty which pervades our city, he named it after himself. <laughs> I want to take you back a thousand years, just about, but it's all modern current history. It's everything that is happening today in the Middle East. 
And I think it's important for us to realize that so that we're not always so surprised and so blindsided by events that occur and that we shouldn't think we're so special because these are very old disputes, wars, violence, and uh, unfortunately, uh, they have never been settled. The basic split in the Muslim world is between the Sunni Muslims and between the Shiite Muslims. That was a split that occurred shortly after the death of Muhammad, and it was a split as is usual in these cases, within the family itself, as to who is entitled to be the successor. Now, succession is probably the main reason for most violence in the world. Who takes over? We read it in today's Haftorah. David HaMelech, Ben Chagis, proclaims of king. Shlomo is going to be the king. Uh, uh, Yoav sides with Adonio, Evyosar uh, sides with Adoniyohu, Tzodok sides with Shlomo. It's a mess because whoever wins, somebody loses. And whoever loses either gets killed, which was usual throughout the world, or in our time will make a different yeshiva for himself. <laughs> But this problem of succession is a basic problem that exists in humanity all throughout the ages. And uh, we cannot expect that it will disappear easily. Now, we're talking about the 12th century, the 1100s. And we're going to see how the Jews fit into it, even though uh, they are not apparently the main part of the story. There is in Iraq, what is today Iraq, and then it was all one big conglomerate, the Mesopotamia, there's a city called Tikrit, which has been in the news often. That was Saddam Hussein's city. Now, the population in that part of Iraq is mainly Kurdish. The Kurds are a tribe that comes from Kurdistan, comes from the Russian Caucasus, came south, became converts to Islam, but they are a definitely different, distinct tribe, culture, and they have striven for a thousand years to be independent of the Arabs. Now, there's a difference between Arab and Muslim. There are... uh, hundreds of millions of Muslims who are not Arabs. But the Arabs claim to be, so to speak, the true Muslims, the original Muslims, because they came under the influence of Muhammad directly. And the holy cities of Islam, Medina and Mecca, are in Arabia, or in what today is Saudi Arabia. In the center of Arab rule, and of Muslim rule, therefore, in the world. And the Muslims here are expanding. They control Spain. They control parts of the Balkans. Uh, They have the intent to control Europe by force. It will not be till the 
14th and 15th centuries until the Muslims are finally repulsed and driven out of Europe. So today they're coming to Europe in a different form. But uh, it's an old story. In Tikrit are Kurds. Saladin is born in Tikrit to a Kurdish family who are rather recent converts to Islam. There's a second city called Mosul, which all of us also are aware of. Mosul is controlled by a uh, tribe, a king, the Zagribs. They are Arabs. The third major city is Baghdad. Baghdad is the seat of the caliphate, of the, so to speak, the emperor of all of the Muslims. And that is controlled by a tribe called the Fatimids. So we got three players here so far, right? Let's add a few more. The Kurdish tribe are called the Ayubs. They're all named after the original founder of the tribe. So you got the, the Ayubs, you got the Zagribs, and you've got the Fatmids. In Damascus, in Syria, there's a fourth group that claims that they're entitled to be the Caliph, and they are called the Abbasids. On top of that, if you're not confused now, <laughs> so there was an emperor in Iraq in the 8th century whose name was Abdel el-Rahman, who was driven out of Iraq and he moved to Spain, and in Spain he became the leader of the Muslims, and he is very influential in Spanish Jewish life. It is under him that the golden age of the Jews of Spain takes place. So uh, there, in the Muslim world, uh, there are different attitudes towards the Jews. One attitude is tolerant. Not only tolerant, Jews are part of the government. Jews are part of the infrastructure. Uh, the country needs the Jews. The Jews are wonderful. The Christians are the enemy. In another part of the Muslim world, uh, the stream is that the Jews are infidels and stubborn infidels of that. And the Jews knew Muhammad and they rejected him. It's the same story that the Christians say that the Jews knew Jesus and they rejected him. And because of that, therefore, at best, Jews are second-class citizens, dimmies, meaning they have very severe restrictions on their participation in society. You cannot build a synagogue uh, uh, that, uh, with the grandeur of a mosque or uh, at the height of a mosque. Jews have to get off the street uh, when a Muslim passes. Jews have to wear special badges, special clothing. And the Jew is uh, at best allowed to live 
but not to live comfortably. And then there are fanatical Muslims who say that if the Jews don't convert to Islam, they should all be executed. Now you have these streams within Islam, and it varies from place to place, and from time to time, and from circumstance to circumstance. In our time, the whole matter is complicated by the state of Israel and its success. Because the state of Israel is a Jewish outpost in a vast area of Islam. And according to many Islamic theologians, it it has no right to exist. No right to be here. So it's not a matter of politics and diplomacy, it's a matter of faith and religion. Well, the moment that any dispute is elevated to the level of faith and religion, it becomes an insoluble dispute. You cannot solve it. Because then in effect you're saying that uh, the religion of a billion people is wrong. Now, in the Gerstiebel, you could say that, <laughs> but you can't say it in the UN. Now, the uh, Kurds traditionally were tolerant to Jews because they themselves were a minority, they weren't Arabs, uh, they found themselves. Uh, uh, in friction many times and they were Sunnis and the area that they were living in was Shiite and you know there's no fight like a family fight and when the family fight is one of religion also so you see, you see what's going on today right it doesn't make any difference half a million people got killed doesn't mean anything because you're doing it for the cause whether the West realizes it or not, but uh, the the war in Syria and in Iraq and Iran, the the whole thing with Iran, that's all Sunni Shiite. Iran is Shiite. ISIS is Sunni. That's what they're fighting about. They've been fighting for a thousand years. And so... uh, how to uh, somehow crawl out of this mess well I have exhausted all of my heavenly powers getting the Chicago Cubs into the World Series so I can't have no more influence to be able to do anything here but how so if you know the story right if you look back a thousand years it's the same places Aleppo is going to be sacked Uh, Damascus is going to be sacked. It's going to be a war in Tikrit and in Mosul and in Baghdad. So, uh, you know, that should give us a little pause as uh, to how we judge the situation or what we can do about it. As though this is not sufficient, we have another big player in this 12th century, the Crusaders the Christians from Europe in 1096 the first crusade 
was proclaimed by the Pope and it came to liberate Jerusalem from the Muslims. The Muslims uh, were very anti-Christian and uh, Christian pilgrims were extorted and executed and all sorts of things. And churches were vandalized. So they're going to have a crusade. They're going to take the whole Middle East and make it Christian. And their idea was to conquer the territory and to force the people to become Christians. They are the origin of the Arab Christian population. Now, the Arab Christians today are a diminishing breed. Uh, for instance, there was a town here, Beit Hanina, outside Yerushalayim, that was an Arab Christian town. The whole town is now in Chile. They're not here anymore. And it's true throughout the Palestinian Authority uh, territory is that the Arab Christians are a diminishing, diminishing group. The Crusaders conquered Jerusalem. Now the Crusaders were terribly anti-Jewish as well. And therefore the Jewish population of Jerusalem shrank to almost nothing. Godfrey of Bouillon and the other uh, Christian knights uh, massacred the Jews. They burned the synagogue down on their heads. And uh, the Crusaders, first crusade was successful. Conquered a lot of territory. So the Crusader kingdom uh, all the way to the north included Lebanon, included parts of Syria. You can see the Crusader fortresses throughout the area until today, the ruins of the Crusader fortresses. And they controlled the coast, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Tyre, Sidon, all of those were crusader fortresses. Acker. So you got out of the crusaders themselves. So they're French, they're German, they're Italian. They're all sorts of people who they don't like each other either. And you have conflicting groups and conflicting personalities and conflicting generals. And so there is great infighting amongst the Christian crusaders themselves. So they split the country. So somebody is king of Jerusalem. Somebody is king of Gaza. Somebody is king of Ashkelon. Somebody is king of Ashdod. Somebody is king of Tyre. So, and the country cannot support any of this because it has no economy and it has no agriculture. So the first crusade peters out. When it peters out, the Arabs return, the Muslims return, and they begin to push the crusaders out. So the Pope calls for a second crusade which takes place now here in the 1100s. And this crusade comes to uh, reconquer all the places that they lost and to expand the crusader kingdom. The Muslims view this as a 
direct threat to their religion, to their faith. And therefore, they look for a way somehow to defeat the Crusaders. But since they themselves are so divided, they're never able to put their act together. The only way to put the act together is, so to speak, to be Saddam Hussein. You become the dictator, you kill out anybody that disagrees with you, and then, you know, then whatever you say, that's what goes. So Iraq under Saddam Hussein was a much quieter uh, place than it is today. Now that's not to advocate Saddam Hussein, but it is a pattern of how to view, you know, people view the Middle East as though it's California. And, you know, somehow we're going to introduce democracy and parliamentary government. Everybody's going to agree. Uh, there'll be uh, peaceful changes of government. But if we look back at uh, the last 1,500 years, from the time of uh, Muhammad till today, you know, that doesn't exist. What existed were empires, and the last one was the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, that it ran everything, and if you didn't like it, they killed you. But to impose a system uh, that will meet Western values is a complete misreading of the mindset of the people in this area. So now let's get to the man called Salah et Din, which we call Saladin. So he's a Kurd. He's born in Tikrit. His father uh, is an official with the Zegrids. And he's a Sunni. And his father and uncle have connections with the Fatmids also. And therefore they rise to, uh, not power, but they rise to influence. And uh, there's his, uh, his son, Saladin, who is a very brilliant person. Saladin knows mathematics. He knows geography. In a world that was illiterate, he knows a number of languages. He's a, uh, you can't use the word, but in the 12th century, he would be a Renaissance man, right? He is the exception to the rule because of the fact that he has a broad education. He's interested in everything. He's curious. And he's a tolerant person. Now, he's a tolerant person who kills hundreds of thousands of people, but he's a tolerant person. He kills because, you know, you know, because he has enemies that threaten his rule. But as we will see, especially to the Jews, he was the most tolerant ruler that there was. Now, we know of Saladin through the Rambam, through Moshe ben Maimon. Saladin uh, gets an appointment uh, to the army, and he's a general, he's successful in the original wars amongst the Arabs themselves. 
He defeats the Zegrids who his parents, his father worked for. He defeats them. And therefore the Fatmids appoint him. He becomes the Grand Vizier of Egypt with his base in Cairo. And Cairo then was uh, Fostad, old Cairo. He will develop it into new Cairo. Now, he uh, is very interested in the fact that there is a large Jewish community in Cairo. The Jewish community in Cairo was a Karaite community, or Karoyim, because the Jews also split. Again, because of succession. In the 700s in Babylonia, the Reish Galusa, the head of the exile, died. And he had two sons. And the younger son uh, somehow was chosen by the rabbis to be the successor. And the older son uh, took up, picked up his marbles. And he said, I'm going to be the head. Uh, uh, His brother complained to the caliph. So the caliph called him in, ready to chop off his head. And he said, you know, uh, the uh, head of the exile is appointed by the caliph. How can you contest whom I have appointed? And he said, this is not the Jewish religion. I'm the head of a different religion. And that's how the Karoim were founded. And in order to make it a different religion, they rejected uh, the oral law, Torah Shabal Peh. They created uh, different things, and it's a discussion for a thousand years in halacha, how to treat the Karoim, whether they're treated as Jews or not. Uh, The Karite community is very small today. Hitler treated them as Jews. Uh, the uh, Ben Tzvi, who was why this is called Beit Knesset Hanasi, because he was the Nasi that uh, really built the institution. Uh, he spent his entire life defending the Karoim and saying that they should be part of the Jewish people. In today's world, because they are relatively so few in number. We don't ask even anymore you know, what you, who you are, what you are. We've been absorbed into the Jewish people. Though there are pockets of charism that exist here in Israel in certain communities. And uh, the rabbinate to a great extent turns a blind eye to the fact. But in this period of time, in the 1100s, the Karoyim are a substantial group with a large influence uh, and in Cairo in Egypt they were the majority now this is also a lesson for us because we think that until our time it was always you know the great rabbis ran the show and everybody was religious and everything and, and it all fell apart you know in our time but that also is a fantasy that's not true and if we recognized it then we would treat things differently in our world as well so the Rambam when he was 15 the Rambam is born in Cordova 
1135. When he was 15, the fanatical Almohads, who are the sect of Islam that does not tolerate infidels, as I explained before, who said either you convert, you leave, or we're going to kill you. They capture Cordova. The Rambam, his father, his brother, we know very little about his mother, whether she was alive then or not. But he and his father and brother flee and go to Morocco, to Fez. When he gets to Fez, the Almohads take over Morocco. So he goes into hiding. The Rambam lives in a cave for many years in hiding. Finally, he and his father and brother escape Morocco. The Rambam writes that they go to Israel. He wants to go to Eretz Israel. And the Rambam lands in Akko. When he comes to Eretz Israel, he sees that it's impossible for Jews to live in Eretz Israel because of the Crusaders. And especially if you were a rabbi or somebody of notoriety, then you were automatically kidnapped and held for ransom. And uh, even after the ransom was paid, it didn't necessarily mean that it was over. That was very common, and that's why the Jewish community in the land of Israel was almost non-existent. So the Rambam has to flee from the land of Israel and he comes to Cairo he comes to Cairo it's a Karaite city but that's what makes the Rambam the Rambam so firstly what he did was he uh, made groups of women that he taught. The Rambam realized that he who has the women has the men too. <laughs> it doesn't work the other way. An error that is also uh, not recognized, unfortunately. I know Rabbi Goldberg today uh, had a uh, Shabbaton for 60 uh, women, secular women, was their first experience with Shabbat, with seeing religious Jews, etc., etc. And uh, some of them were very prominent women. And he told me that when it was all over and everything, they all said, well, I'm going to go home and talk to my husband. So uh, he uh, is able to influence the women. Uh, he uh, introduces them to the laws of Taras HaMeshpocha, of the mikveh. He teaches them kashras according to the rabbinic laws. Slowly the community changes under him. So within 20 years of his arrival, it is no longer a Karaite community it is a rabbinic community. Meanwhile, the Rambam is writing his great uh, works, 
Mishnah Torah, etc. The Rambam was supported all of this period of time by his brother, who was a diamond merchant, precious stones, who would uh, travel to the Far East in order to gain the stones and bring them back, and then they were sold on to Europe. The Jews were the middlemen. That's how Jews were always in the diamond business. And the Jews were the middlemen between the, the diamond mines of the Far East and between Europe and the European nobility always was purchasing. His brother was lost at sea on one of the voyages. The Rambam's wife and his two daughters die in a cholera plague which affects Cairo. His father passes away. The Rambam is at a low ebb. He writes of his depression. He is saved by his second wife, who has an Arabic name, Fatima. And she rebuilds him. And they have a child, the great Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam. But the Rambam has to make a living now. He doesn't have a brother that's supporting him, right? But the Rambam uh, was always a uh, person that knew everything, that studied everything. In those days, uh, you didn't have to have a license to be a physician. You had to be uh, someone who said that he knows how to cure illnesses and diseases. And the Rambam gained a reputation first in the Jewish community. As he was very adept at pharmacology. And we read the, the Rambam wrote a number of treatises on medicine that we have today. He wrote them in Arabic. They've been translated into many languages. And he, uh, today we would say he used alternative medicine. And he was uh, used preventive medicine. He was uh, out of the box. And he was recommended to the grand, by the Jews that were close to the government, uh, the grand vizier Saladin had a harem with many wives, and they were always getting sick, mainly because of him. <laughs> And so, therefore, he took the Rambam and he appointed him to be the doctor in the harem. And he also, he felt he could trust the Rambam in the harem, which he could not do with his other doctors. The Rambam eventually becomes the personal doctor of Saladin himself. Now, Saladin is the Grand Vizier, which is not the ruler yet, but he is a great warrior. He is always going to war, and he vanquishes his foes. Uh, he gets rid of the Fatimid dynasty, and he supports the Abbasid dynasty. The Abbasids, therefore, make him the Sultan of Egypt. So now he's in charge of all of Egypt. 
Now, he uh, is very disturbed by the Crusaders. The Crusaders, uh, at the end of the Second Crusade, attempt to uh, push the Muslims out of Palestine completely, and they invade Egypt. And in a number of battles, he defeats the Crusaders, and then he expands. He takes the war into Syria, into Aleppo. Aleppo was a bloodbath, which uh, none of the Christians survived. And the, uh, he always offered terms, and if they accepted the terms, so then they could live. Many times he even accepted uh, ransom to let them all go home. And between them, they are always bribing each other. Finally, uh, he uh, establishes his rule, not only in Egypt, but in Syria as well. And from Syria, he expands to what is today Iraq, to Mesopotamia, to the entire area. So that, in effect, the Sultan of Egypt now becomes the caliph of the entire Arab world. And he's got a Jewish doctor by the name of Moshe bin Maimon. So the Lord has his ways, right? As we are well aware from current events. It's never the way it looks. And... uh, he decides uh, that he's going to drive the crusaders out of Jerusalem. Now the crusaders, now you have to remember this, the crusaders controlled Jerusalem for 88 years. The two mosques were churches. The Muslims were not allowed, there were no Jews in Jerusalem. Even a hundred years later, when the Ramban arrives here, he couldn't find the minion in Yerushalayim, he writes. I mean, if you lived a thousand years ago and somebody had told you there's going to be a Jewish state in a thousand years, and, you know, and there'll be, uh, you know, there'll be uh, 600,000 Jews in Jerusalem, he would say he's crazy. But uh, that's the story. So uh, for 88 years, it's under Christian control. Now, that's what the Muslims say today, by the way. If you listen, they say it. They say that uh, we, Lahavdal, are the Crusaders. So he said the Crusaders had Jerusalem for 88 years, and we drove them out. So, you know, you're going to celebrate now 50 years of the reunification of Jerusalem. doesn't mean anything, because that's the mentality. The mentality is that we did it once, we'll do it again. And uh, that makes it very hard to, uh, what shall I say, to make peace, to come to, uh, to any sort of an arrangement. Because the mindset is not there. The mindset is not there at all. So again, in the Western world, you have the mindset that, uh, even though that is changing too, that we're not going to redraw the borders of Europe anymore. Whatever it was at the end of the Second World War, that's what it is. Goodbye. 
but you see that Putin uh, he says the Crimea is really Russia and the Ukraine is really Russia even though it's uh, many many years later already so the passage of time does not necessarily change mindsets and uh, that's an issue an issue that uh, we have to contend with we have to think about so in any event uh, Saladin uh, conquers many of the crusader fortresses especially in Syria those that were in Iraq those that were in Lebanon those were in the north of Israel Safed, etc. He conquers them all. So that the king of Jerusalem is pretty much isolated. Because Jerusalem has no, uh, it's not easily defensible. And it has no hinterland, it has no way to support it, right? Has no river, has no water, has no agriculture, and it has no industry. It's a Kaviochal, an artificial city that the Lord created for us. Because all the major cities in the world are built on rivers or on oceans or on means of transportation, on highways. Uh, Jerusalem doesn't have any of that. Never had any of that. And the Christian interest in Jerusalem was purely uh, based on religion, on the Christian holy places. And there were all sorts of... Uh, wild things that existed in the Middle Ages regarding uh, they say uh, they they used to sell pieces of wood that said were from the cross on which Jesus was crucified. So that was a big industry. You know people love, uh, by us too, right? People love these things. So school if you got a piece of the true cross in your house. So, I mean, that cross must have been as big as the country, right? Because uh, it ended up with so many pieces. And everything, they sold thorns from the crown of thorns. They, it was a, a, a tremendous industry, Jerusalem. That's how it supported itself. Everybody had a piece of it. One of the conditions of the truce between the Saladin and the king of Jerusalem had to do with how many pieces of the true cross would be, because that was worth money. It was worth big money. I remember uh, when I was a Roman Muncie, so there was a Jew from Jerusalem that came, and he uh, needed money for Achnosis Kalev. Uh, so he was selling stones from our Sinai. <laughs> There's a medrash that he showed me that all the stones have lines in them in the shape of a shin. Three lines. And he had these stones. So I told him, listen, I'll give you. But I don't need the stones. He said, the stones? I said, I said, I have the Torah from our Sinai. What do I need the stone for, right? <laughs> what are you selling stones here? But he sold out in Muncie. <laughs> he sold out. 
I remember uh, one of the officers of my shul said, you know, Rabbi, I'm going to buy you a stone. <laughs> so I told him, give me a raise. Don't buy a stone. It's a stone. But the, the, the mentality is that these relics, icons, whatever you call them, so all of Europe is dotted with it, bones of people, uh, all sorts of crazy things. And, uh, you know, whatever is in the non-Jewish world is in our world too, so we also have all these things. Right? Uh, So uh, Saladin conquers Jerusalem. He takes the two mosques and turn, to two, uh, turns them back into mosques. He uh, dechristianizes them. He drives all of the Christians out of Jerusalem, but under the influence of the Rambam, and because of his tolerant nature, he allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And not only that, uh, they bring Jews from Ashkelon, from Ashdod, from other places in Israel to come live in Jerusalem because uh, he wants to populate the city and he trusts the Jews much more than the Christians. So the Second Crusade is a failure because now Jerusalem is in the hands of the Muslims, not the Christians. So the Pope calls for a third crusade, which is led by Richard the Lionhearted of England. And uh, this third crusade, uh, Saladin is the, uh, the Muslim leader who opposes it. The third crusade is initially successful. Richard the Lionhearted conquers many of the port cities uh, and when he does, he massacres everybody. And now he's coming to try and take back Jerusalem. But to take back Jerusalem, he has to cross the valley where today Kibbutz Lavi is located. Uh, by the way, I'm sure everyone here wants to go to Shavuos with us to Kibbutz Lavi. <laughs> well, we'll be happy to point this out to you. And if you before Shavuos Hanukkah, you all want to go to Eilat with us. <laughs> uh, you see uh, Rabbi Amsel outside, and he'll give you a special discount. I doubt it, but maybe he will. <laughs> In any event, so you have to cross. Richard the Lionhearted makes a number of bad errors. There is an area outside of Kibbutz Labi that's called Karnei Chitin, the Horns of Chitin. It's two little hilltops with a valley in the middle. It's mentioned in the book of Yoshua. Yoshua fought a battle there. We're old timers in this country. It's a hot summer day. There's only, we know what a hot summer day can be. Uh, the Crusaders uh, march about 20 miles to get into position at the horns of Chitin, and they're wearing this full body armor, 
metal in the hot sun. So by the time they come there, they have dead. And Saladin uh, forces them into a position in the valley that they're on the bottom and the Muslims are on top. In any event, he destroys them at the horns of Chitin and Richard the Lionhearted is captured and uh, spends time in a Muslim prison till he's ransomed and sent back to England. Uh, the other, uh, there was a, a, a General Raymond, uh, was a Frenchman who Saladin personally killed him because he said he was a murderer. There were rules of war, believe it or not. It's the age of chivalry. And he said that Raymond violated the rules of the age of chivalry, and he personally killed him. He writes about himself that he personally killed at least 200 noblemen in his career. And he writes that as, you know, uh, to show what a just person he is. Because that's the mindset of the times. On the other hand, he sponsors scholarship. Uh, he sponsors Arabic scholarship. Uh, he wants to build a, an astronomical observatory in Cairo. He rebuilds Cairo so that it's not the old city of Fostad, but it becomes a big metropolitan area. He creates walls. If uh, I don't know if we'll ever be able to visit Cairo comfortably, but there's a lot to see there. And the Jews in Cairo... I mean, the, the great Ibn Ezra synagogue and the other synagogues in Cairo all develop under him because of the fact that there is this feeling of tolerance in the country from the ruler uh, that the Jews are entitled to their religion. And the fact that the Rambam was the doctor certainly contributed to uh, that uh, assessment. It's interesting to note the Rambam himself writes about his life uh, that he has no time for anything. Uh, Somebody wrote him a letter and said, uh, I want you to answer me, right? Like the constant emails that everybody is bombarded with. I want you to answer me. So he writes him back. He says, how can I answer you in detail? He said, I get up in the morning. I go to prayers. After the prayers are over, I get on a donkey, and I have to go to the court of the king. He's always waiting for me. There always are patients. In the afternoon, I come home. Then there are patients here that I have to see. I eat uh, very little He said, I'm so tired at the end of the day that when I have to go home, they throw me on the back of the donkey. I don't have the strength to mount it. And he said, only on Shabbat do I have a chance to teach Torah. So uh, that was the type of relationship and the type of life that he lived. But he and Saladin are somehow inextricably bound together so that even if you look it up in Wikipedia or anywhere else, you'll always find that Saladin has some relationship to the Jews. When they laid out the streets of Jerusalem, so they kept the name of the street leading to the wall. So it's right across Herod's Gate. 
right across the, the, the Herod's Gate is the beginning of the street of Tzalachadin. If you go out, as I mentioned, from Shar Shem, and you turn right on Suleiman Street, the first main street you come to, that is Saladin Street. You, you go left, and that goes into the heart of the Arab area until today. So uh, he's an interesting person. And it was a... Uh, a time that has great relevance to us, right? Because even though it's a thousand years ago, uh, we see that many of the same problems and the same issues and the same names are, uh, are here today in the struggles that exist. And I think it's reassuring that uh, we have a chance to look back those thousand years and see, uh, I'm sure that Saladin would be very surprised to see you know, who's running his street today and uh, the entire structure of, uh, of what exists here today. So that's the lecture about Saladin. Next week we're going to do another great Arab ruler, Suleiman the Magnificent, well known for his modesty. And uh, <laughs> he, there's a street right outside the walls of the old city, uh, the Muslim quarter and the Christian quarter runs right outside, named for him, Suleiman, which he also named for himself. So, uh, but he also has a very interesting story and a lot to do with the Jewish people. Thank you for coming tonight. Shavua Tov. This JM in the AM Wednesday, uh, Saladin. The name of the lecture from the Jerusalem Geography series by by Beryl Wine. We will continue with more from this series. We love focusing on Jerusalem during our nine days format, and Rabbi Wine allows us to do that with a uh, comprehensive look at the, some of the uh, streets and areas of Jerusalem through this series. Uh, information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's um, uh, lectures to receive his lectures, uh, to see the, everything that's available, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Also, um, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. That's how you um, get information about the uh, amazing lecture series. Wednesday morning with 70 degrees, 71% humidity, winds are north at 7 miles an hour, mostly sunny, a high of 88, then tonight partly cloudy, low 66. Tomorrow's sunshine, a high Thursday, 83 degrees. We're at 86 in Yerushalayim, up in Guilford, New York. Our friends at Camp Missora are at 58 degrees as they wake up. Good morning, everybody up in Missora. It was great being there on Sunday. We're at 70 here in New York City as we say good morning at JM in the AM. Uh, embarking on our amazing trip to Israel this coming Tuesday with Nefesh Benefesh, the Wednesday morning jam in the AM. You will hear from the Nefesh Benefesh plane Thursday morning from Yom NCSY at Latrun, Friday morning from the NCSY summer programs in Beit Meir. We have a lot coming up and, and an amazing and incredible Israel trip. And then, of course, when we're back on Sunday the 29th, that's the day we go up to Cav Hask for the Hask Experience Day. It is going to be quite a journey to Israel. Lots of different things being added to our itinerary for the end of July. I myself 
can't believe how many things are going on. Um, and we'll have all that uh, information for you as we get closer and closer to the big trip. Uh, it is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSegal.com, on the NahumSegal Network, and, of course, in the beloved NSN app. Galay Tzal in the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up. Reminder, this coming Sunday, Tisha B'Av, starting at the 9.15 in the morning after JM Sunday, we will be presenting the New Springville Jewish Center's Kinos and lectures about Tisha B'Av, all happening from the New Springville Jewish Center in Staten Island on Saxon Avenue, beginning at 9.15. You'll catch it all at NahumSiegel.com. Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. Newscast next. Galei Tzal, Asha 2, here Ofek Albert in what's going on now. המתיחות בדרום, יחידת העפיפונים בעזה מחישה את הדיווחים הבוקר כי חמאס יפעל להפחית את מספר השיגורים, כתבנו הצבאי צחי דבוש. בפרסום שהופץ ברחבי הרצועה על ידי יחידת העפיפונים נכתב, בניגוד לפרסומים השקריים אנו מודיעים כי יחידתנו פועלת משעות הבוקר להראות שהתנגדותנו נמשכת עד לסיום המצור. עוד הוסיפו, אנו מוסרים לאויב כי ככל שיעדק את המצור, כך כמות השריפות תלך ותגדל, והשריפות יגיעו למרחקים גדולים יותר ויותר. תביעת הילדה בת התשע הבוקר בברכה במלון בים המלח. המשטרה הגבה לחקירה שישה מעובדי המלון והחשד לגרימת מוות ברשלנות. כתבנו רמי שאני מוסיף כי החוקרים בודקים האם המלון חרג מתנאי הרישיון שלו. חמש שנות מאסר נגזרו על ראש ארגון הפשיעה מאיר אברג'יל ועל העבריין מוטי חסין מבית המשפט המחוזי בתל אביב, מדווחת כתבתנו פיי גוטמן. במסגרת הסדר טיעון הודו והורשעו מאיר אברג'יל ומוטי חסין בכתב אישום מתוקן. אברג'יל נידון לעונש מאסר של שמונה שנים וחצי, מתוכן ירצה חמש שנים בלבד לאחר ניקוי. על חסין נגזרו חמש שנות מאסר בפועל. השניים חברי ארגון הפשיעה קשרו קשר לפשעים חמורים וביצעו עסקאות סמים רחבות לצד חוק הפונדקאות אושר סופית בכנסת ללא הסעיף הכולל אבות יחידניים. שערה נרשמה במליאה אחרי שראש הממשלה נתניהו הצביע נגד הסעיף על אף שהצהיר תמיכה בו השבוע. בנימין נתניהו נגד. קסניה סבטלובה. יואל חסון. במחל אישור הסעיף הכריזו ארגוני הקהילה הגאה על שביתה ביום ראשון. וקראו להיעדר ממקומות העבודה ולהשתתף בפעילויות מחאה. תקרית במחנה הציוני, חבר הכנסת איתן ברושי נגע בישבנה של שותפתו לסיעה, חברת הכנסת איילת נחמיאס ורבין, והתנצל. כתבנו מיכאל האוזר טוב. במהלך סיור שהתקיים בימים האחרונים בהשתתפות חברי סיעת המחנה הציוני, נגע חבר הכנסת ברושי לעיני חברי סיעתו, בישבנה של חברתו לסיעה נחמיאס ורבין. לאחר זמן קצר הוא התנצל בפניה. בתגובה הוא מסר, מיד בתום האירוע התנצלתי על התקרית מעומק ליבי, מחווה שהייתה אמורה להיות חברית, יצא בצורה הפוכה לחלוטין. בתאילנד, 12 ילדים שחולצו מהמערה שוחררו מבית החולים, כתבתנו יערה גם מחורי. בשעה זאת החל מסיבת עיתונאים בהשתתפות הילדים ומאמן קבוצת הכדורגל שהיו כלואים במערה בצפון תאילנד במשך יותר משבועיים וחולצו במהלך שלושה ימי מבצע מורכבים. הילדים ששהו בבתי החולים מאז שבוע שעבר שוחררו וכעת מתכוננים לשוב לבתיהם ולמשפחותיהם. 
מזג האוויר אצלנו חם מהרגיל. ולסיום, הטכניון הוא המוסד האקדמי המוביל בישראל ברישום פנטטים בארצות הברית, כתבנו קובי מנדל. לא פחות מ-56 פטנטים אושרו אשתקד לטכניון מטעם משרד הפטנטים האמריקני. הטכניון מדורג עתה במקום ה-39 מבין 100 אוניברסיטאות המובילות בעולם, בהם ייל ו-MIT. ברשימת המאה גם אוניברסיטאות תל אביב וירושלים. אלה החדשות שערך ניתאי ענבי. JM in the AM, that's of course our news from Israel. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. We are in the uh, series of uh, lectures called um, Jerusalem Geography. Jerusalem Geography. And a moment ago, Rabbi Wine teased for us the... Uh, contents of this lecture. I believe Suleiman the Magnificent is going to be the topic based on, again, Jerusalem geography. Information about Rabbi Wein's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWEIN.com. Good evening, everyone. Shavua Tov. Uh, tonight's lecture regarding the streets of Yerushalayim. Last week we discussed the emperor, the sultan, Tzalach Eddin, That's the street off of uh, the walls of Jerusalem. Tonight we're discussing the street that surrounds uh, parts of the walls of Jerusalem. It's a continuation of the Rehov Atzan Chanim, which is itself a continuation of Shlomo HaMelech, which itself is a continuation of Agron, which itself is a continuation of Ramban which is also a continuation of Rupin. So we have a lot of people in few streets. So therefore, they were always hard-pressed to uh, assign names. Uh, and uh, But the street runs uh, along the uh, wall of Jerusalem. And uh, today it would be... Uh, When you go to uh, Sharyafo, so if you turn left, it's, uh, then there's the Shara Chadosh, and then there's uh, Shar Shechem, and uh, the next one is uh, Shar Hordus. That's where Suleiman Street is. And uh, Suleiman was called both by his enemies and by his defenders, Suleiman the Magnificent. Uh, a lot of people were called the Great, but very few were called the Magnificent. And there's a reason for it, because he is really uh, out of the box. He's not your ordinary uh, sultan, as we will see, uh, hopefully, in the next uh, few short minutes, which take almost an hour. Suleiman's father, well, let's start at the beginning. The uh, Muslim world was divided into a number of different caliphates. Different, cent- we're talking here, the 15th and 16th centuries. 1400s to 1500s. Now, the Muslim world then was far advanced than the European world. In culture in technology, in education, in music, 
uh, it was the leading civilization in the world, except perhaps for the Far Eastern ones, the Chinese, etc., which were practically unknown even then in the Western world. So uh, there is a competition, naturally. There's a caliphate in Damascus. That's one center of Islam. There's one in Baghdad, which is another center of Islam. There was one in Cairo. Now these caliphates, those three, are all Arab. Even though we discussed that Saladin was a Kurd. But the basic uh, constituency of the country is not only Muslim, it is Arab. Now, not all Muslims are Arabs, and not all Arabs are Muslims. Most Arabs are Muslims. Most Muslims are not Arabs. And uh, the uh, one of the problems that we have, of which we have many, is that the uh, struggle of the state of Israel has become a struggle with Islam and not with the Arabs. If it would purely be a struggle with the Arabs, it would have taken on a different uh, face today. In any event, a new uh, factor enters into this. And that is the rise of the Ottoman Turks. Now the Turks are not Arab. They are relatively recently converted to Islam, only two or three centuries. Uh, They are a tribe that came from the Caucasus. Uh, They are very talented people. And uh, they establish their center by conquering Constantinople which is the center of the Christian Byzantine church now the 14th and 15th centuries were disastrous for Christendom Uh, you're going to have the Renaissance and then the Reformation which will undermine uh, the Christian religion generally Uh, you have uh, uh, the popes uh, fighting uh, the Holy Roman Empire. You have all sorts of terrible internal divisions in Europe. Uh, and Europe is very unstable. And uh, the uh, Turks are able to conquer Constantinople and they change the name to what is today Istanbul. Now, Constantinople was the most important city in the bridge between Asia and Europe. It sits on the Black Sea, on the Bosporus, on the Dardanelles Straits, on the Mediterranean. Uh, Really, it controls and it blocks uh, European access to the Mediterranean through the Black Sea. That's one of the things that Russia has throughout the centuries uh, attempted to uh, somehow uh, have an outlet from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean without having to go through Turkey. Now, there is an emperor, we're talking the beginning of the 16th century. There's an emperor by the name of Selim. He's the sultan. 
in Constantinople. Selim marries a woman of unknown origin. Now, usually in those terms, it suggests that she was not a Muslim. In fact, she could have, may have been Jewish because there are Jewish legends regarding Soleimani. And uh, he did not marry anyone of royal blood. And she gives birth to this child, Suleiman, which is the Arabic name for Solomon. And uh, he is raised to be the heir to his father, Salem. This is Salem I, who is uh, the uh, sultan in Turkey, in Istanbul. Now, Salem has the great idea that he's going to eliminate the other three. He's going to eliminate Baghdad. He's going to eliminate Damascus. He's going to eliminate Egypt. He's going to be it. But he doesn't live long enough to do it. Now, there's a parallel here. The parallel is with Philip of Macedonia and Alexander the Great. Philip of Macedonia wanted to unite all of Greece and he wanted to conquer Persia, take over the Persian Empire. He died before he could have accomplished it. His son Alexander, Alexander the Great, is the one that finished it. He conquered Greece and the Persian Empire and he extended their dominion over practically the entire civilized world of that time. Well, that's the same thing that's going to happen here with Salem and with Suleiman. Suleiman uh, is the longest uh, ruler, longest uh, living ruler in uh, the Ottoman Empire. He was the Sultan for 46 years, and therefore he had time. But he had more than time. He had great ability. Even as a child, his hero was Alexander the Great. He sees himself as Alexander the Great. Now, it's very important, especially uh, with children, how one sees oneself. What is one, how does one view oneself? Who is one's hero? Who do I want to be? If I could be anybody in the world, who would I be? So, unfortunately, a lot of people wanted to be Michael Jordan. <laughs> or some other sports figure or celebrity figure. And usually that ends up in tragedy because they don't have the physical or other abilities or the opportunities to make good on that. But sometimes people have very heroic figures that they want to model their lives upon. And Suleiman wants to be Alexander the Great. Now, his father sends him Istanbul, then was the center of knowledge, learning. He sends him what we would call today the universities. He sends him to Harvard, to Oxford, to, you know, to an intellectual center. When he is still a young child, 12, 13 years old, he learns languages, he learns mathematics, he becomes a proficient poet in a number of different languages. 
and he also learns the art of war and therefore when his father dies he succeeds now one of the remarkable things here is that the succession was uncontested almost all successions in this period of time both in Christianity and in Islam were contested brother against brother children against father very rarely did it pass without a problem uh, in fact uh, Suleiman's own children he had two sons that died in his lifetime one son died of smallpox but the other son was executed by his father because his father suspected him of mounting a rebellion against him and we find that in Tanakh that uh, David HaMelech uh, had sons that Avshalom uh, and Adam who mounted rebellions against him during his lifetime and it was uh, true by uh, was, so it was common that the loser would lose his life as well it wasn't just that you lost an election and uh, Suleiman uh, so in 1520 he becomes the sultan so he has three major objectives one is to get rid of all the other caliphates two is to conquer Europe Europe, Christendom three is to establish uh, the Ottoman Empire as being the largest and most powerful and influential empire in the world now that's a uh, lot to have on your plate very ambitious goals he somehow uh, attempts what originally looks like the impossible but it's not the impossible because of various reasons first of all the other caliphates are all corrupt Uh, they're all badly ruled Uh, they are technologically inferior to uh, the Turks and therefore they fall easily under Suleiman's army and influence so Suleiman uh, by 1525-1526 rules from Istanbul but he rules the entire Near East he, uh, fr- uh, even North Africa all the way to the tip of Morocco and Algeria and the entire nor- uh, northern coast of Africa and actually the land of Israel uh, the Arabian Desert Egypt, what is today Syria, Iraq, Iran, all of which are under the domination of the Ottoman Empire. But his goal now is Europe. One of the great what ifs of history, if he would have been successful, he is almost successful. You know, most of. world history uh, can be characterized by the word almost almost Uh, what if the Germans would have won in Stalingrad almost and uh, hundreds of other examples exist 
So uh, his father already had designs on Hungary. Hungary borders on the Ottoman Empire to the north. And uh, his father, uh, Hungary was contested. It was the flashpoint of the contest uh, between the Holy Roman Empire, which became the empire of the Habsburg family, and between the Muslims, between the Turks. And uh, uh, he invaded, uh, the father Salem already invaded Hungary, uh, and uh, the Muslims had a foothold in Hungary. Under uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, the Muslims invade the Balkans, which remains until today semi-Muslim. Albania is Muslim, Bosnia is Muslim. And uh, the problem with the Balkans, there's a lot of problems, but one of the problems is this religious conflict never went away. And it flared up again in uh, the 1990s uh, when the Serbs who represented the Christians fought in Bosnia. And basically it was a religious war. Um, then the Christians fought among themselves, the Croats, the Slovenes, the Serbs. It's, uh, it's always been a very unstable area. It's the cockpit that created World War I. And uh, it dates back to here, to the 1500s. We don't know what would happen today if uh, the uh, 40, 50,000 NATO troops were withdrawn. Whether the war would flare up again. It could very well be. Because the enmities there are very old and very deep. So uh, Suleiman conquers the Balkans and he conquers Belgrade, captures Belgrade which is the capital of Serbia, across the Danube River from Vienna. His next step, 1529, is to besiege Vienna. Had he conquered Vienna and the Holy Roman Empire then, so there's no telling Europe would have been overrun because there was no power great enough to stand before the Ottoman Turks. Now, Vienna was defended. There were two brothers who hated each other because they competed to be the Holy Roman Emperor. So one was called Charles and one was called Ferdinand. Now, uh, Charles uh, uh, and uh, Ferdinand, the Habsburgs originally controlled Spain then they controlled parts of Italy, especially the Kingdom of Naples. Italy was fragmented as it, as it is today. I mean, so all, all old history is today's history. The people in southern Italy have nothing to do with the people in Florence. And uh, I think there's a referendum tomorrow that they say is going to break up Italy if it passes or if it fails. I don't know which one. 
about that uh, something that uh, happened in the 1400s the 1300s should still be going on today uh, to us is very hard because uh, you know uh, especially those of us who come from uh, Anglo countries so you know let's sit down and make a deal and get it over with so we can watch the football game but it doesn't work that way these are long-standing, difficult disputes uh, that continue even when the reasons for the dispute are no longer present, which is really frightening. And uh, therefore, uh, uh, w- without any choice, uh, Charles, who is the titular emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, is forced to make an alliance with his brother Ferdinand in order to oppose the Ottoman Empire because single-handedly alone neither of them are strong enough and in return he makes Ferdinand the king of Hungary Uh, that later on will become the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Hungary always saw itself different from Austria, even though they were both under Habsburg rule. But the, uh, the Magyars are a different ethnic group, and Hungary also wasn't one ethnic group, it was a combination. The Magyars were only about a third of the population, and that created great problems for the Jews in the 20th century because they wanted to enforce Magyarization on everybody. And the, the Magyars uh, resemble uh, the, the Finns. Uh, the Finnish language and the Hungarian language are very close, both of which are indecipherable and not understandable. <laughs> and... Uh, So Ferdinand becomes the king of Hungary. Charles is the king of Spain. Together they want to take over Austria and the Balkans. They want to expand the Holy Roman Empire. Germany then has 130 different governments. 130 different municipalities that are independent of each other. There is no Germany. Germany was created... Much later when Prussia, under Bismarck, united all of Germany. And uh, as the British statesman then said, woe to Europe when Germany unites. And uh, he was uncannily correct. It caused two major world wars and the Franco-Prussian War uh, contributed to the death of uh, tens and tens and tens of millions of people. In any event, that's the picture here. And uh, Suleiman comes and he besieges Vienna. JM in the AM with Ray Beryl Wine talking about Suleiman the Magnificent in a series entitled Jerusalem Geography. Ray Beryl Wine's lectures at 1 800 499 WEIN and com. Rabbi WEIN. Com. JM and AM Wednesday morning. Thanks for joining us. Nine days format, of course. As we get closer and closer to Tisha B'Av, reminder, Tisha B'Av morning, 
You'll be able to uh, watch and listen to the um, you'll be able to watch and listen to the presentation of Kinos and the Tishabov lectures from the new Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island starting at 9.15 in the morning on Sunday, 9.15 a.m. That's when it'll all begin. Again, 9.15 a.m. We'll go until uh, Mincha at um, the 2 o'clock area. Uh, then a reminder, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. There will be Mincha at the Isaiah Wall on the 1st Avenue, 43rd Street, New York City, out opposite the UN. That'll be at 2 p.m., 2 o'clock for Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, 2 p.m. for Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. And then 7 o'clock, Project Inspire, with us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Project Inspire, led by Charlie Harari, in an amazing final two hours, perfect way to end Tishabov. They've done it many years, and they do it so well. Charlie will be the uh, anchor of that. You'll be able to hear all of it here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Very much looking forward to it. Wednesday morning broadcast by David Goldwasser's words, Zechanishmas Rav Zebna Bezavalevi, and Zechanishmas Esther Basar Bezavalevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We read in Echa, Al For this, our heart was ill, our eyes were dimmed. During this period of the three weeks between Shivasa Betamuz and Tishabov, we mourn the destruction of the first and second base of Mikdosh and the ensuing exile of the Jewish nation from the land of Israel. Our sages explain that the source of all of Klal Yisrael's transgressions are enrooted in two sins, the golden calf and the meraglim, the spies. Although at the time of Matan Torah, all of the impurities of Klal Yisrael, both spiritual and physical, were removed, when they sinned with the meraglim, the sin of the Cheta Egel was once more brought into account. Had they not transgressed with the sin of the spies, Klal Yisrael would have been able to enter at Yisrael immediately. The Imre Noam notes that in fact these two Averas caused the destruction of the first and second temples. The Talmud in Yuma states that the first base of Mikdash was destroyed because of the transgression of Avodah Zarah, idol worship. This second base of Mikdash was destroyed because of the sin of Sinas Chinam, Baseless hatred in Lashon Hara. This is the cry of the Navi and Echa, Alzeh. Alzeh is comprised of four letters, the Ayin, Lamed, Zion, and the Hey. It forms an acronym for Avodah Zarah, the Ayin and the Zion, and for Lashon Hara, the Lamed and the Hey. The Zayar tells us in Parshas Pinchas that Yerushalayim is called the heart. Similarly, we find in Yeshayahu, Dabru alev Yerushalayim, speak to the heart of Yerushalayim. The Ariya Kodesh calls these two months Enayim, both Tammuz and Av. On the 17th of Tammuz, because of the Cheto Egel, or the sin of the golden calf, the Luchos were broken. And because of the Cheto Meraglim, the sin of the spies, which occurred on Tishabov, a day of weeping was set into motion for future generations. Perhaps the Ariya Kodesh was also alluding to using our eyes for introspection, that during this three-week period, we should do some soul-searching and see how we can further develop our relationship 
with the Ribbana Shalaylam. These three weeks compels us to some deeper thinking. Three prophets use a Lashon Eicha. Moshe said in Devarim, Eicha Esolavadi, how can I alone carry all that you have? That was when Klai Yisrael were amidst riches and luxury. Yeshayo saw Klai Yisrael in a reckless situation, and he said, Echa hoysa how is it possible that she was wanton? Yermio saw them in their disgraced state. Echa yoshvavodod, she sits in solitude. It is interesting to note that the word Echa has the same gematria, numerical value, as the word Ela, which is 36. Between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av, we fast a total of 36 hours. We pray that that unique light from the time of creation, which originally shone for only 36 hours and then was hidden, that it should be restored to us again in the schus of our tshuva and masim toivim. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. We continue with uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on Suleiman the Magnificent in the Jerusalem Geography series. Again, it's 1-800-499-WEIN. For information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. So all old history is today's history. The people in southern Italy have nothing to do with the people in Florence. And uh, I think there's a referendum tomorrow that they say he's going to break up Italy if it passes, or if it fails. I don't know which one. But that uh, something that uh, happened in the 1400s, the 1300s, should still be going on today. Uh, to us, is very hard because, uh, you know, uh, especially those of us who come from uh, Anglo countries, so, you know, let's sit down and make a deal and get it over with so we can watch the football game. But it doesn't work that way. These are long-standing, difficult disputes uh, that continue even when the reasons for the dispute are no longer present, which is really frightening. And uh, therefore, uh, uh, without any choice, uh, Charles, who is the titular emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, is forced to make an alliance with his brother, Ferdinand, in order to oppose the Ottoman Empire. Because single-handedly alone, neither of them are strong enough. And in return, he makes Ferdinand the king of Hungary. Uh, that later on will become the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Hungary always saw itself different from Austria, even though they were both under Habsburg rule. But the, uh, the Magyars are a different ethnic group. And Hungary also wasn't one ethnic group. It was a combination. The Magyars were only about a third of the population. And that created great problems for the Jews in the 20th century because they wanted to enforce magularization on everybody. 
and the, the Magyars uh, resemble uh, the, the Finns. Uh, the Finnish language and the Hungarian language are very close, both of which are indecipherable and not understandable. <laughs> and uh, so Ferdinand becomes the king of Hungary. Charles is the king of Spain. Together they want to take over Austria and the Balkans. They want to expand the Holy Roman Empire. Germany then has 130 different governments. 130 different municipalities that are independent of each other. There is no Germany. Germany was created much later when Prussia under Bismarck united all of Germany and uh, as the British statesman then said woe to Europe when Germany unites and uh, he was uncannily correct it caused two major world wars and the Franco-Prussian war uh, contributed to the death of uh, tens and tens and tens of millions of people in any event that's the picture here and uh, Suleiman comes and he besieges Vienna. Now, in this period of time, the way you conquered was mainly by siege. You besieged the city, you cut off all its supplies, you cut off all reinforcements, and you asked that the city surrender. If the city surrendered, now, you know, there were always rules of war, if the city surrendered, so then the civilian population more or less was protected. But there was a change naturally in sovereignty, in taxes. Uh, the uh, old regime would be executed. The new guys would take over. Okay. If you did not surrender, if you uh, defied the siege, so then the city could be sacked. Uh, the word sack meant completely destroyed. Not only destroyed, the civilian population could be killed, the women could be taken, uh, everything went. There was no protection for anybody. And many times uh, the uh, besieging army uh, hoped that the city would somehow resist surrender because then that would give them free license to do whatever they wanted to when they conquered the city that was the rule of law and the rule of war at that period of time so Suleiman besieges Vienna nine months and somehow they don't give in and he is overstretched because the besieging army is itself under siege. It also has to be supplied. Usually in the siege, uh, the besieging army lived off the land. I mean, there was no way to transport. If he had uh, 50,000 soldiers, no way to feed them every day. So they lived off the land. Well, after nine months, the land couldn't support them anymore. The land was barren. And his supply lines were greatly overstretched. And he therefore had to give up the siege. And Vienna remained Christian. And that was the high point 
of the Ottoman Empire and of the Islamic uh, invasion of Europe until today. Today the Islamic invasion takes on a different form, but Europe has become more Islamicized uh, than, it ever, than it ever was, and that is the danger that is involved. Is that when you have uh, 10, 15, eventually 20% of the population, and so then there are great problems, especially in our time when Christianity has waned almost completely in Europe as a faith. So then you talk in terms of democracy, you talk in terms of tolerance, and all of the uh, nice words of Western civilization, and you're talking to a, uh, a section of humanity that doesn't understand what those words mean, because that's contrary to their interpretation of their religious faith. Now, Suleiman is not out to convert them. It's an interesting thing. As Suleiman, as I mentioned, is a uh, tolerant ruler. And we'll see that in the discussion regarding the Jews in a few minutes. He, uh, you know, he, he just wants to own the world. But uh, whether or not the world is Islamic, uh, it really is secondary to his goals. Naturally, uh, all of his conquered territories realize the advantage of being an Islam. They realize that if you want to get ahead, if you want a good job, if you want to have privileges, then uh, you're much better off being a Muslim than, let's say, a Jew or a Christian. Nevertheless, there are many, many tens of thousands of Christians under his domination, maybe hundreds of thousands. And there are a lot of Jews. Now, why are there a lot of Jews? Well, the Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492, at the end of the 15th century. There are approximately 200 to 250,000 Jews that have to go somewhere, and have to go somewhere quickly. That was half the Jewish population. The other half stayed and became conversos, Muranos, whatever. But half of them left. So many of them went to Italy, which is close. And there was an ancient Jewish community in Italy. So, for instance, then Isaac of Barbanel, who also has a street named for him, uh, became a financial advisor to the king of Naples. And he's buried in uh, Italy, near Padua. And there was a large Spanish influx of Jews into Italy. Now, Suleiman never touched Italy. However, not all Jews went to Italy. Many, if not most Jews from Spain, went into Europe. Many went into the Balkans, which was the closest way. And many made their way to Turkey to the Ottoman Empire. In fact, uh, uh, all of the, not all, but uh, the great men of uh, Torah 
from Spain, almost all of them found themselves in the Ottoman Empire. Yosef Karo, Rakov Beirav, Shlomo Alevi Alkabats, all of these people, originally Spaniards, came and settled. Many settled in the land of Israel, but more settled in the Ottoman Empire, especially in Turkey. There were great uh, Jewish centers now in Adrianople, which is today Smyrna, and in Istanbul, and in Izmir. These were great, large Jewish communities built mainly by the Spanish exiles. Now, many of the Spanish exiles were very talented and noble people. So when Suleiman looked for a doctor, he followed the pattern of, that existed throughout European history. He got a Jewish doctor, a Moshe Chazon, who was an observant Jew, and he was his doctor and his dentist. He had very bad teeth, Suleiman. Now, Suleiman also marries out of the box. He, the, all the sultans had harems, and he married a girl, a Christian girl from Ruthenia, which is Poland, the Ukraine. And because the Turks used to have uh, forays into Christian countries and kidnap women for the harem, because they never wanted Muslim women for the harem. They wanted uh, women that were blonde and blue-eyed. They wanted Aryans. So uh, he falls in love with this harem girl, and he marries her. She uh, ostensibly converts to Islam, and he is influenced by her. It's very dangerous to marry for love. And he is influenced by the court physician, who is Jewish. And that makes him to be much more tolerant towards other faiths. Because in his heart he may be aware uh, that his wife, who was born and was a practicing Christian, even though she converted to Islam, you know, is not really the, the real McCoy. And the court doctor certainly isn't. So he is tolerant to these Jewish exiles. In fact, he encourages that the Jews come to the Ottoman Empire. He sees them as being a uh, vital force, as being able to contribute to the empire. Don't forget he's a person of uh, education, of knowledge, He respects Jewish literacy in an age when all of Europe was illiterate. In the 16th century, still 90% of Europe could not read or write. In our time, they can read and write, they just don't understand. (laughs) But then they couldn't read or write. And uh, therefore, uh, the Jews are a valuable asset to him. And he allows them to build synagogues. 
one of his uh, great uh, interests is architecture to build there are a number of grand mosques in Turkey that are that were built by him it's not the ones that are in Istanbul because they were they preceded him one of the, the Saint Sophia was a church before it was a mosque but uh, in the other places in Turkey that, that uh, tourists go to Sophia and other places you have these tremendous buildings tremendous size and tremendous beauty uh, using all sorts of materials uh, to construct uh, edifices of great beauty and he, he was interested in that architecture and many times he instructed the architects as to how he wanted the building to turn out he comes to Jerusalem uh, the uh, gold dome here the mosque of Omar had been fought over during the crusades uh, in the first crusade the crusaders converted it to a church at the end of the second crusade when uh, the Muslims recaptured Jerusalem they uh, again made it a mosque but it had fallen into disrepair it wasn't gold plated it wasn't uh, it wasn't the central mosque in the world the one who made it the central mosque in the world were the British because on every postage stamp from Palestine was the picture of the mosque so Suleiman rebuilds the mosque of Omar he's the first one that plates it uh, not the first one but he replates it with gold and he rebuilds the Al-Aqsa mosque and then as a final contribution he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem now the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed a number of times they were destroyed by the Romans so uh, half the walls were destroyed in the destruction of the second temple but a lot of the walls still remained after the rebellion of Bar Kokhba 65 years later the Romans tore down the rest of the wall because it was felt that the city that had no walls uh, would never be able to be rebuilt as a major city in the middle ages uh, the walls that existed here were uh, flimsy uh, and uh, therefore uh, the crusaders were able to uh, conquer the city easily and then the Muslims were able to conquer it easily so he decided that he's going to really rebuild the city and he's going to rebuild it with walls the walls that we see today that surround the old city of Jerusalem are from Suleiman the Magnificent the 1540s and 1550s uh, he uh, wanted to make Jerusalem to be a main city not so much for uh, religious reasons as for historical reasons in order to do so it needed a proper system of walls so all these gates that we have are uh, you know like uh, Jaffa Gate but uh, 
whether in the time of the bias it was called Jaffakade or not, no one knows. You don't find Shariafo uh, mentioned or certainly... Uh, so those are like a Herod's Gate, New Gate. Those are all uh, names that were given to the gates. And uh, he hired uh, two uh, well-known architects to uh, do the job, to build the walls. He didn't realize that when you hire Middle Eastern architects and Middle Eastern contractors, you don't always get what you planned. And these guys, so he gave them a budget, and they decided that they would make some money on the budget. So they shortened the walls. Instead of extending it to the degree that he wanted it, they uh, cheated him. And when he discovered that, he hanged both of them. When you enter Jaffa Gate today, and you turn to the left immediately, you will see two tombs. Those are the tombs of the two architects that Suleiman hanged for shortchanging him on building the walls of Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that the doctor, the religious doctor, Moshe Hanun, proposed to him that he as long as he's building Al-Aqsa and as long as he's building uh, the Mosque of Omar he should also build uh, the Beit HaMikdash there's plenty of room up there and uh, since he was uh, tolerant and he recognized that Jews uh, there was a holy land for Jews etc and it had a sizable Jewish population then because the immigrants from Spain had settled in Sfat and in Yerushalayim and in Hebron always fighting with each other but uh, but he did not allow it he said it would be blasphemous for Islam and he uh, did not want to engage in any sort of holy war with his fellow Islamists and so therefore that died a morning however in my opinion and by now you know I'm always right that uh, it is no accident that the false messiah Shabzai comes from the Ottoman Empire comes from Turkey comes from Smyrna because the uh, Turkish Jews always had that so to speak in their mind that somehow it's going to come from them whether through Suleiman or through somebody else, but it's going to come. And that was a driving force uh, that allowed him to, uh, that allowed the Shabzai three at least, to gain initial popularity, is because he came from the right place. And people believe that somehow, like today we all know the Messiah is going to be Hungarian. So, so, we have, so that's the right place today. But uh, then the right place was Turkey. And nobody thought, I think even today, no one thinks that he's coming from Poland or Russia or Eastern Europe. It's it's an amazing thing that the uh, false, uh, almost all the false messiahs uh, were uh, 
Sephardic in origin or an inspiration, not Ashkenazic. It's like Ashkenaz had a tradition that that isn't what they're going to do. What will be today, uh, you know, I don't know. I have exhausted all my heavenly uh, abilities getting Trump elected, so I, uh, <laughs> I cannot do anything more on that issue. If, first I did it to get the Cubs in this World Series. And <laughs> In any event, in any event, uh, Suleiman uh, now uh, he uh, he's got almost 300 million people under his rule. Man, you know it's a lot of people today. Unless you're in charge of China, nobody else. Maybe America has 300 million now. But uh, that's an enormous, enormous amount, especially for the 16th century. When the world was the world population was maybe uh, not more than a third of today's uh, world population, and uh, he's got uh, this tremendous power and tremendous wealth, and uh, he uh, wants to advance this idea of a, a universal caliphate. That will be uh, at one and the same time Islamists, but also will be uh, uh, acceptable. I don't know what word to use. I think acceptable is the acceptable to the rest of the world too. And uh, to a certain extent, this is the high point of uh, Muslim civilization. Uh, certainly, from the time of Suleiman onwards, the Ottoman Empire regresses. It will regress over 500 years until it falls apart completely uh, as a result of the First World War. But it was falling apart for 500 years before that already. It falls apart because it uh, becomes very corrupt. It becomes uh, divided by uh, all sorts of internal strife, different ethnic groups, and because the Christian world nibbles at it. The Christian world never forgave it for besieging Vienna, never forgave it for conquering Belgrade, and uh, because of that, uh, it uh, constantly pushed against it. The, uh, the Crimean War in the 1800s was a war against Turkey, uh, all of these wars First World War was against Turkey uh, the Versailles Treaty was against Turkey and therefore that's why Erdogan today I mean I don't know why the people don't ask me to explain the world to them but Erdogan today is uh, you know from his point of view he's 100% correct we were the greatest and everything and you made us into nothing and we want to be something and don't think that you know that you're going to stop us, and don't think that you're going to uh, uh, you know reimpose uh, the influence of the Western world in Christendom uh, on the Muslim world, and that basically is the struggle. Now Israel is uh, we're caught in the middle here. 
because he doesn't quite know what to do with us. Because the Muslim world never quite knew what to do with us. That's the difference between the Muslim world and the Christian world. The Christian world knew what to do. They couldn't do it, but they sure tried. Either convert or disappear. That was the program of the Christian world from uh, the beginning till the Second World War, till our time. It's only because the Christian world itself is today so weakened in terms of Christianity and faith uh, that it no longer espouses such a program. But it still doesn't know what to do with us. That still is part of the problem. It affects the Vatican in hundreds of different ways. What do you do with them? Why are they here? Who gave them a stake? Why do you make so much trouble? Now, the Muslim world never had a program. So their program was dimmy. Their program was, okay, they'll be Jews. We we can't get rid of them. But they'll be second-class citizens. They won't bother us. So for a long period of time, that worked. It didn't work to the advantage of the Jews, but nevertheless, compared to what happened to us in Europe, it was um, much more livable. A much easier situation. Enter the Zionist movement, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, and creating a Jewish state in the heart of Islam, and capturing Jerusalem so that the mosques are, even if they are not. Uh, under Jewish control physically, but under Jewish control, period. The police can shut down the mount. Now that is a theological difficulty to the Muslim world. That's something that they were told for centuries could never happen. And when you believe things can never happen, and they happen, then you have a problem. And uh, I think that uh, the root of much of the struggle that we have is that difficulty. So that's the same thing with Turkey. I mean, he didn't, you know, uh, if Suleiman the Magnificent would rise from the grave today, he wouldn't know what to do with a Jewish state either. Because he's accustomed to Jews that are subservient to him, that are his doctor. But he's not accustomed to Jews that are going to intercept the boat that he sends and kill Turks. That, uh, you know, that's shockwaves. So uh, uh, much of what happens with Suleiman uh, really affects us because of the fact that it uh, it, uh, shows uh, how deep the problems are and what could have happened. Don't forget that uh, just as the Christian world never forgot the siege of Vienna, the Muslim world also never forgot the siege of Vienna. And that uh, that almost uh, is more painful than if it never would have happened before. So after the death of uh, Suleiman, his son Salim II takes over, but he's not his father. 
all children are not their fathers. Some are greater, some are not. So, but they're never the same. Which is a uh, a lesson in parenting that we should remember. Your son is not going to be you. Your daughter is not going to be. Your daughter has more of a chance of being the mother. Certainly not the mother-in-law, but uh, but the son is not going to be you. And uh, he uh, he falls victim already to uh, to the wealth, to the opulence, to the harem, to uh, everything else that comes with being the uh, child and successor of Suleiman the Magnificent. And beginning with him, you have a slow, slow decline. His grandson will be the one that uh, forces Shabzai Tzvi to convert to Islam. Because uh, the, uh, the, the false messiah idea has gone far too uh, important to ignore it any longer. And uh, eventually the Ottoman Empire is known as the sick man of Europe. And in the 19th century, what happened was that all the European countries uh, came to bite off pieces of the Ottoman Empire, especially here in Palestine, in Jerusalem. So here we had an Austrian consulate, the Russian colony, the Russian compound, German colony, French, everybody is here. The Anglicans, everybody is here. And uh, the Turks were powerless to stop it. That's one of the reasons why uh, Turkey joined with Austria and Germany and being the central powers in the First World War because they felt that was their last shot to remain an empire and to control territories and they lost and when they lost uh, the victors divided up everything that they had amongst themselves now Turkey fought a bitter war against Greece in, the, in 1920 bitter bitter war and there you had Turkey expelled uh, 60,000 Greeks from Turkey sent them back to Greece Greece expelled 100,000 Turks from Greece. Greece and Turkey today still are not friendly, even though they're part of NATO together, because the fear of Russia was greater than their enmity. But all of this has a history, has a long history of problems. And uh, today, uh, the reemergence of Turkey, Turkey sees itself as the main power in the Middle East. And Turkey's competition is Iran. And uh, Israel is caught in the middle. We always are. So how it will resolve itself, I cannot help you with. But uh, I think it's important to realize that uh, there are very uh, strong antecedents to our situation. And we should not despair because we're seeing the playing out of historical consequences in our time and in a way that really was unimaginable. So Suleiman was really the magnificent because he is the greatest sultan that the Muslim world produced 
and as far as the Jews were concerned, like Saladin, uh, he uh, he was beneficial to us, and maybe that's why he has a street in Jerusalem, and it's near his walls, which were constructed, runs right along the walls, and uh, he is remembered. Uh, it's interesting, he's probably more remembered in Jerusalem and by the Jews than he is remembered in the Islamic world, but that always happens. I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Next week we're going to talk about... JM in the AM, more coming up, of course, from Rabbi Beryl Wine. Amazing lectures, in this case the uh, series entitled Jerusalem Geography here at, um, at JM in the AM. Um, a couple of reminders regarding a couple of reminders regarding um, uh, Tishabov, of course. Uh, we will be presenting right after a JM Sunday on Sunday, starting at the nine fifteen in the morning. We will be presenting the um, Tishabov program from the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. Everybody's invited to be there. 120 Saxon Avenue on Staten Island. It's free. It is, um, again, open to the public. Men and women are invited. The live Tisha B'Av program at the New Springville Jewish Center will feature Kinos Explained with uh, Rabbi Elio, Sun and Shine, Shlomo Schwartz, and Rabbi Moshe Faskowitz starting at 9.15 in the morning. Then, thoughts about Tisha B'Av with Mayor Simcha Siegel and Rabbi Aaron Raps. Uh, you can watch the entire program at NahumSiegel.com and listen at uh, our website on the app and, of course, via our listen line beginning at 9.15 on Sunday. Information 718-983-8063, 718-983-8063. Charlie Harari is going to spearhead the um, Project Inspire program beginning at 7 p.m. on Sunday. The Tisha B'Av live streaming talk show featuring Charlie and the Project Inspire staff. Uh, we, of course, will carry it, nachomsigl.com. Make sure to be tuned in. Mincha at the Isaiah Wall is 2 p.m. Mincha at the Isaiah Wall will be 2 p.m. Uh, you have an opportunity to uh, come on out and support Jews around the world who are in difficult circumstances across from the United Nations, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City this coming Sunday on Tisha B'Av. Make sure to bring your talis and tefillin. Again, Mincha at 2 p.m. Isaiah Wall, 43rd and 1st in New York City. Rabbi Beryl Wine is um, presenting an amazing lecture series for us. I remind you that his lectures are uh, available by dialing 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. We continue with the series on Jerusalem geography. You are listening to JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns uh, a street in the German colony. And uh, since uh, there are going to be a number of streets in the German colony in this lecture series, so I'd like to say a few things about the German colony itself. In the 19th century... Uh, There were, throughout Europe, especially amongst the Protestants, uh, there was a messianic fervor. There was a belief somehow that the end of the world was coming, 
and that the Messiah is around the corner and because of that there was a uh, great interest in the land of Israel now in the middle ages when the uh, Christian world had a messianic fervor after the reformation after Martin Luther there uh, they said that the new Jerusalem would be uh, Strasbourg, Geneva it would happen in Europe but in the 19th century when they had this messianic fervor uh, they said it would happen in the land of Israel and that therefore there were groups of Christians from various countries that set their goal to settle and colonize in the land of Israel now these were not large groups but the whole country was small and the population was small so it had an impression in the time of the Crusades there were German Crusaders and they created a group called the Knights of the Temple or the Templar Knights and uh, this was uh, a pretty exclusive group and they were very powerful and for a long time they controlled Jerusalem later they moved to Cyprus and to other areas in the Middle East in 1873 this is all long before Zionism in 1873 there was a German Protestant believer in the Messianic era occurring before the beginning of the millennium before the beginning of the next century rather and uh, he purchased from a, uh, an Arab that owned a large tract of land here now Jerusalem then was a very small city it was basically the old city there would later be a few outlying neighborhoods but uh, all of this was prairie all of this was open it was uh, pasture land it was not settled at all and not built up so he bought this from an absentee Arab landlord he bought what is called the German colony and he uh, brought over Germans, Protestant Germans, who believed that the Messianic era was about to occur. And they began to build homes on this tract of land that he had purchased. The homes they built were German in style in fact many of them were wooden homes and uh, they uh, brought tiled roofs to Jerusalem and they were the ones that made the red tiled roofs which uh, pretty much uh, are popular throughout the country and this group the Knights Templars they called themselves again 
settled so there were a few hundred of them they later grew to be about two or three thousand and that's why it was called the German colony because uh, all of these neighborhoods were not attached to each other so Katamon was Arab the German colony was German there was the Greek colony that was Greek the French were here the English also were here with the Anglican colony off of Derek Beitlechen and uh, only in our time since uh, the state of Israel has so to speak all of these colonies coalesced into neighborhoods that run one into another and form the city of Jerusalem as we know it today now these Germans uh, the streets that they had had German names and they existed here uh, through the first world war even though Germany was an ally of the Ottoman Empire and England opposed them when Great Britain took over they did not in any way uh, harm or discriminate against the German colony and between the wars the German colony grew when Hitler came to power in the 1930s so one of the uh, uh, ideas that Hitler uh, broadcast all over the world is that he was going to unite all Germans under him wherever a German lived that was his basis for taking over the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia that was his basis for joining Mayanschluss with Austria wherever German or German speakers were Danzig in Poland one of the places that he wanted to take over is here and they uh, the inhabitants were uh, very pro-German and very pro-Hitler that was not a rare thing I remember in Chicago when I was a child before America entered the war uh, there was the German-American Bund Fritz Kuhn and others that had mass rallies supporting Hitler that marched in the Chicago streets especially in the Jewish neighborhoods Uh, this idea of German unity all over the world uh, struck strong roots when the second world war broke out the British deported all of the Germans that lived in the land of Israel that was uh, the niceties of international law were not observed and uh, all of them were kicked out of the German colony and the German colony then was taken over by uh, 
British troops. Uh, there was a large British force stationed here in Palestine and in Jerusalem. The British officials. And they began to redo the homes in the German colony to cover them with stone instead of wood. They left the red roofs alone. Many of the Germans that were deported, Britain sent them to Australia. Many of them went back to Germany. When the state of Israel was declared in 1948 and the war took place here in Jerusalem, and the Jews conquered West Jerusalem. They drove the Arabs out of Katamon and Talbia and other neighborhoods. Uh, so they took over the, the German colony. As part of the normalization of diplomatic and economic relationships between uh, then it was West Germany and the state of Israel, Israel agreed and paid compensation to the German owners of property in the German colony. And the property then uh, came to the state of Israel, which then sold it to private developers, etc., etc. And then uh, the German colony uh, became a more upscale neighborhood, which it still is today. And then it was bordered Amik Rafaim and Derech Beit Lechem, those two main streets. And there were a lot of little streets in the German colony, as there are today. We can go only for a few blocks. And they are perpendicular to these main streets, to Derech Beit Lechem or to Amik Rafaim. One of the streets is called Kremio which is what we're going to discuss tonight. There are other streets there that we'll discuss later, Lloyd George and others. And those streets were named by the naming commission that exists here in Jerusalem that names streets. And the German colony streets uh, have a lot of non-Jews that uh, their names are there. And they have uh, Jews as well. Now, Kremio was born as Yitzchok Moshe Kremio uh, in Nin in 1796, which is uh, southern France, uh, Provence, that area. But he is not known as Yitzchok Moshe. He's known as Adolf Cremio. Adolphe, the French form of the uh, name of Adolf. He was born into an assimilated family. Uh, his father was a great supporter of the French Revolution, uh, anti-clerical, anti-religious, liberal, And uh, that was the education that he received. He received almost no Jewish education per se. But somehow he felt Jewish, which is an interesting thing. 
there are people who are Jewish even though they don't have any background and don't have any education but their uh, attachment to the Jewish people is in their soul and their being there are other Jews that may even have great education but they don't feel so Jewish and under uh, circumstances many times uh, they turn out to be uh, less than friendly to us in any event he attends, he and his cousin who are the only two Jewish students in their, grand, in their elementary school and in their high school and in the lyceum in the college that they went to but when other Jews in that time readily converted to Christianity in order to become part of the general society and we're talking in the 1800s of uh, maybe 250,000 Jews in Western and Central Europe that converted to Christianity because they wanted to be uh, the Israeli never could have been Prime Minister if he weren't an Anglican and that's true of uh, many many others who saw their future only as being a Christian the great uh, poet Heinrich Heine who uh, converted to Christianity said that the ticket to admittance in Western society is to be a Christian. And there were many, many Jews who were willing to buy that ticket. In fact, it was probably the largest, uh, most numerous uh, conversion of Jews to Christianity voluntarily in European history. They didn't convert the way the... Spanish Jews were forced to convert or the uh, Russian Jews that were forced to convert in the Russian army we're talking here about voluntary conversion in order to get ahead in life and Kremion never converted he goes to law school that's all good Jewish boys And he wants to be admitted to the bar. Now, uh, what happened was the revolution was in 1797. By 18, uh, 1799, 1800, 1801, Napoleon is on the scene. By 1815, Napoleon is gone. And we're talking about the Second Republic already. Then the Emperor uh, Louis uh, Napoleon comes back. And then there's a revolution in 1848. Then there's a new republic. Then there's the Franco-Prussian War. France is a mess. It's pretty much a mess today, too. Because you have these uh, tremendously conflicting forces in France. One is the Catholic Church. Very strong. Very anti-Semitic. Very conservative. The second is the radicals, those that created the revolution. Very anti-Catholic, anti-clerical. And then beginning in the 1800s, you have a very, very strong left. And they are all vying for power. 
and none of them ever achieve absolute power. So therefore, it's a constant tension. To become a lawyer in France in the 1820s, which is already after Napoleon, you have to remember that Napoleon granted Jews civil rights, he made them citizens, he removed many legal barriers that allowed Jews freedom in France, even though the anti-Semitism in France never abated, never went away. And we'll see with the Dreyfus trial and other events, uh, the Second World War, the collaboration of France, the destruction of French Jewry. But uh, legally, the Jews in France were free. And they had citizenship rights. However, to become a lawyer, to pass the bar, you had to take an oath. And there was a special oath that was given to Jews. And the oath that was given to Jews stated that this oath cannot be canceled by Kol Nidre. Now one of the accusations against Jews throughout the centuries has been that Jews are not loyal. That no matter whatever oath they take, they are not bound by it because every Yom Kippur they recite Kol Nidre, which says all our oaths are annulled. So how can we ever trust Jews to be loyal? They swear loyalty to a government, to the army, to whatever, and then they say Kol Nidre. So therefore in France, in order to make certain that the original oath was an oath, they instituted a second oath, which said that the Kol Nidre, this oath cannot be canceled by Kol Nidre. Now, the Kol Nidre is a different lecture, for which you didn't pay, and I'm not going to share it with you, but <laughs> that, would, that was the situation. Cremieux refuses to take this oath. He says it's discriminatory against Jews. He refuses to take it. Somehow, he is uh, a great orator. You know, in our time, uh, the gift of oratory is not uh, as important as it once was. But he was a great orator, and he was a very persuasive person. And somehow they let him into the bar without taking the other oath. Not only that, he immediately defended two other Jewish attorneys who also now, following his example, refused to take the oath. And he successfully defended them in front of the French Bar Association, so that in practice, the Jewish oath disappeared. And that really is the lodestone for his career. That's what he was. He was a champion of Jewish rights. He was a defender of the Jewish people. He was a defender of individual Jews and the Jewish people generally. And that is how he saw himself. Even though he's a Frenchman to the core, and even though we'll see he serves as a deputy in the French parliament, he was uh, served in a ministry, 
he was very active in French politics but that's not what he's known for I would say uh, he was like a one man anti-defamation league wherever Jews were going to be in trouble anywhere in the world as we'll see in a few minutes he rises to their defense and uh, he had a very successful law practice uh, which uh, gave him uh, stature and wealth so you know there were a lot of people that want to stand up for us but if they don't have money and they don't have stature and nobody will listen to them so it's uh, it's like spitting in the wind but if you're somebody of stature if you can be a member of the parliament or a member of congress etc and if you have independent means if you have wealth so then you have opportunities the question is what do you do with those opportunities that really is a question that uh, probably uh, is being asked I shouldn't say because I don't know heaven but probably they're asking uh, regarding American Jewry or regarding Jews of influence anywhere in the world you know the famous uh, uh, incident which is recorded for us in the Bible that when Yehoshua enters the land of Israel he sees an angel that stands in front of him he doesn't recognize him as an angel he sees a man, somebody's there and he's armed he's got a sword and Yeshua says to him three words four words are you on our side or against us? And the Malach says, Atabosi, I'm on your side, just came now, we're going to have a But those are, that's the question, right? That is always the question. Are you for us? Are you against us? That's the question that, you know, that, that haunts much of the Jewish world. Because many times people say, I'm for you, but they're not really for you. And, uh, I don't have to enumerate uh, how that plays out in our world. So in any event, uh, in 1827, he is defending these people against the Jewish oath, and the Jewish oath disappears. So he single-handedly is the one that, uh, that creates, so to speak, a different climate for Jews in France. Then what happened is, because of his uh, oratorical ability and his success and his notoriety, so in 1834 there is something called the Consistoire, which is the consistory of French Jewry which Napoleon made. They're the Jewish organization in France, they still exist till today. Uh, The chief rabbi is appointed by them, etc., and uh, he becomes the president of the organization and he is zealous in making certain that Jewish rights in France are maintained and we'll see how in a few minutes the 
because he has a lasting influence far after his death and uh, things that he never imagined which always happens in life you know many times a person does a good thing and you don't realize till 200 years later what a good thing he did because we always play the long game not the short game in 1840 there was a blood libel in Damascus now the blood libel never died the, uh, the libel that Jews used somehow the blood of a Christian child to bake matzahs for Pesach which was created in the uh, 12th century in uh, England that uh, libel uh, has an afterlife that exists until today it's believed in much of the Muslim world today it's also believed in parts of the Christian world there is no way of somehow extinguishing that blood libel so any time that there is a Christian child that's missing and is later found dead then the Jews did it that's the only explanation as late as uh, 1921 in Messina, New York there was a blood libel I had a member of my shul in Miami Beach who came from Messina who was alive then in 1921 and he describes the uh, tremendous uh, hatred towards the Jews because of that blood libel even though the police later naturally found that the Jews had nothing to do with that missing child and that the whole thing was, you know, just fabricated. But uh, again, facts have very little to do with Jewish history and with how people view us. And that's something that the state of Israel is finding out very painfully. It makes no difference what the facts are. So in 1840, there was a priest, Catholic priest in Damascus, that murdered a child. And to exculpate himself, he said that the Jews did it, and that they did it in order to obtain the blood from the child to bake matzahs. This is 1840. The French had an influence in Damascus. Damascus was under the Ottoman Empire, but the French always have had an influence in Syria. You know, the French missionaries there for centuries, and perhaps even dating back to the Crusades. And uh, because the priest said it, so a priest never lies. Uh, 13 leading members of the Jewish community in Damascus were arrested by the Turks and under torture they confessed torture uh, rarely elicits truth that's part of the problem that exists today with dealing with terrorists is that uh, information that is gained under uh, what they call today aggressive interrogation uh, many times is very unreliable because people will say almost anything 
and these people were condemned to death the Ottoman Turks were going to uh, hang them a group of influential Jews around the world headed by Moses Montefiore in England and he had the backing of Queen Victoria and Cremieux in France now Cremieux and Montefiore went to Damascus to defend these Jews and uh, they were able uh, to prove their innocence and that the blood libel was a smear and that it never happened now that was an enormous accomplishment because had the blood libel remained on the book so to speak then it could be repeated over and over again everywhere because it had precedence until now it had no legal precedence it's just what people said but if the Ottoman Turks executed people on the basis of the blood libel so it must be the blood libel is true and therefore it would have repercussions all over the world and uh, Cremieux and Montefiore were able to uh, of course Montefiore the fact that he had the backing of Queen Victoria and the British Empire uh, the Turks were very uh, cognizant of that and uh, that played a great role so when you speak about the Damascus blood libel most people associated it with Montefiore but Cremieux is his co-equal partner if not even more in the stifling that blood libel uh, that occurred in 1840 then later in Russia there's a blood libel now the Tsar uh, the Russian Orthodox Church was terribly anti-Semitic and uh, the uh, in an unlettered society Russia in the 1800s uh, 90% of Russia was illiterate superstitious and believed in icons and holy men I mean it produced Rasputin as late as the 19 15, 16, 17 till he was assassinated that he could run a country so uh, uh, in a certain Staratov in a certain village in Russia a child disappeared children disappear God forbid but they do all the time there are unfortunately predators in the world and uh, the Jews were accused again of this blood libel and the Tsar said they were guilty and the Orthodox Church said they were guilty and they were going to hold a trial Cremieux again travels to St. Petersburg and he is able with the help of a Jewish uh, small amount of rich Jews then in Russia uh, to have this blood libel quashed completely so the idea didn't go away the accusation didn't go away but the legality of it went away 
And here is a man that's willing to travel all over the world. You know, he can take a a train from uh, Paris to Damascus or a plane from Paris to St. Petersburg. You're talking about rigorous journeys of weeks. And he does it in order to save Jews. In order to prove that the Jewish people are not guilty of any sort of blood libel. So now he views himself, you know, he saved individual Jews. But what are you going to do for the Jewish people as a whole? And here there is a uh, controversial uh, creation which exists until today uh, all over the Jewish world. He created an organization called the Allianz. Alliance to Israel at the Universal, the Universal Alliance Organization of Jews. What was the Alliance's purpose? It had a twofold purpose. One was this Anti-Defamation League purpose, that the Alliance as an organization, instead of Cremieux as an individual, or Montefiore as an individual who fought for Jewish rights and fought against uh, discrimination and false accusations against Jews. Instead of that, we have this umbrella organization that includes all Jews, even though it basically was French, that will defend Jews wherever they are. Hire attorneys, investigators, will do whatever necessary groundwork in order to save Jews from these types of false accusations. It also will fight discrimination that Jews are entitled, that Jews were locked out of many positions, governments, army, etc. The Alliance would fight all of that to make Jews equal, etc. That was one purpose. The second purpose, which is more controversial, and which remains a source of controversy until today, was that the Alliance created schools, mainly in the Middle East. Why in the Middle East? Because France already took over in Algeria as a colony, and in Morocco, and as I mentioned, it had great influence in Syria, and in what is today Lebanon, which then was part of Syria. And the purpose of the schools was to take these poor Jews who have no culture, who don't know anything about European society, who can't speak French, and to, uh, so to speak, civilize them. To introduce, uh, and this was especially true amongst the Sephardic Jews, uh, so they would introduce culture, they would teach them the French language, in, but they had no Jewish studies per se in the curriculum of the Allianz schools. Naturally, the Allianz schools therefore were opposed by the rabbinic establishments, whether they be in Algeria or Morocco, or whether they be here in the land of Israel. There are still Allianz schools here in the land of Israel today. I mean, they've morphed into different things, and they do have Jewish content today. But, uh, for instance, there was a school here in Jerusalem that was uh, 
uh, a battleground for decades between the, the rabbis and the religious community and between the, those that wanted the school and sent their children to the school. And the schools provided an excellent education. And they were very attractive. And people said, if I want my child to get ahead, I'm going to take him out of the Torah school because there he's not going to go anywhere in society. And I'll put him in the Allianz school because in the Allianz school then he can become a lawyer or a doctor or whatever and be a success. This was a battle in the 1800s, was a battle in the 1900s. And, they, and it's morphed into a different type of battle today, but it's still the same battle. When they speak today about a core curriculum in all the schools, all of that, that's a continuity of this battle of what should a Jewish school look like, where should its emphasis be, what does it hope to produce? So anyway, he becomes the head of the Alliance. And uh, under him, it grows enormously. He is an excellent fundraiser. As I mentioned, he has uh, great skills. Persuasive, an orator, a writer. Now, he gets into trouble. Uh, he gets arrested in 1851 by because of his uh, liberal politics. He's very, very liberal. And uh, the emperor then uh, wants to, uh, after the 1848 uh, rebellion, etc., wants to uh, stifle all opposition. So he was arrested as being a uh, rabble-rouser, etc., an insider. That's a very difficult thing to prove, by the way. Very, very uh, thin ice that we skate on, that you arrest somebody for inciting. What does that mean? Especially in a society that proclaims itself that it has freedom of speech. If you have freedom of speech, then what is inciting? But he was arrested and he was imprisoned. When he got out of prison, he retired from public life. Like for 19 years, we don't hear from him. Apparently, being imprisoned made an impression upon him. He didn't want to start again. But in 1870, he returns again. He returns to public life. He again is elected a deputy in the French parliament. Uh, He uh, serves in a ministry. And he uh, does something, as I mentioned, with enormous foresight that no one saw at the time. No one realized at the time what was happening here. As I mentioned, Algeria became a uh, French colony. The French took it over. After a period of time, uh, the French government uh, not only uh, treated it as a colony, it treated it as part of France. This would uh, would last till the 1960s when de Gaulle uh, 
removed France from Algeria, and Algeria became an independent country. But until then, it was one of the uh, counties, you know, like uh, like Provence or like Alsace-Lorraine or uh, Bordeaux, etc. So the Algeria was part of France. Now, who had the right of citizenship in Algeria? Because the right of citizenship meant that you weren't a citizen of Algeria, you were a citizen of France. And therefore you could move to France, you could you had all the privileges that uh, French citizenship could bestow upon you. So originally uh, that was reserved for the French, the French colonists who lived in Algeria, they had citizenship. The natives, meaning the Berbers, the Arabs that lived in Algeria, they had no rights of citizenship. What about the Jews? Because there was a large Jewish population that existed in France, I mean in Algeria. And Jews had lived there for centuries on end. Uh, so now were they uh, French or were they like the indigenous population? If they would be like the indigenous population, then they had no citizen. They were second-class citizens. They weren't allowed admittance into France, etc. Cremieux uh, was able to have a decree passed. It was called the Cremieux Decree which said that Jews are Frenchmen. The Jews of Algeria have French citizenship. In other words, the Muslims, the Berbers, those who live there and have lived there for a millennia, they don't have citizenship. But the Jews have citizenship. And through his efforts, this decree gave Algerian Jews French citizenship. In the 1950s and 1960s, when the great uh, war in Algeria took place, and when finally de Gaulle said France is going to leave, so then uh, 95% of the French left Algeria and moved back to metropolitan France. That happened with the Jewish population in Algeria also. That's why they were like 500,000 Sephardic Jews that suddenly moved to France and became the Jewish community in France. J.M. in the A.M. with our barrel wine. We will, um, we will um, uh, try to play this lecture in its entirety tomorrow morning when we begin J.M. in the A.M. just after 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, those of you who are um, fascinated, as most of our audience is, by the lectures of Rabbi Wine, um, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, also RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com for information on the web. I remind you that we have uh, so many things going on. It's amazing, including this Sunday, Tisha B'Av, we will be presenting live from the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island a Tisha B'Av program that begins at 8.20 a.m. with Shacharis, and then we go live at 9.15. Kinos will be explained by Rabbi Eliyahu's son and shine, Rosh Hashiva, Vishiva, Gidola, or Chodash, 
Shlomo Schwartz will speak in memory of Rabbi David Schwartz and Rabbi Moshe Faskowitz, Rosh Hashiva Vishiva Madrega Saadam. At 12.15, thoughts about Tisha B'Av with Mayor Simcha Siegel in memory of Rabbi Moshe Weisberger. And at 1 p.m., Rabbi Aaron Raps, Rosh Hashiva Vishiva Zichron Shraga, uh, they will be uh, speaking about Tisha B'Av. Mincha will be at 1.45. You can watch the entire program this Sunday at NahumSiegel.com. And, of course, listen on our website, on our app, and via the listen line. Information about being there this Sunday. Everybody's invited. It's free admission, 718-983-8063, 718-983-8063. Project Inspires, 7 p.m. on Tisha B'Av this coming Sunday with Charlie Harari and the Project Inspires staff. It is free of charge. We'll have it here on the website, NahumSiegel.com. Starts at 7 p.m. under the leadership of Charlie Harari. Reminder, next week we take off on Tuesday for Israel. Wednesday's JM and the AM will be from the Nefesh Benefesh flight. Thursday's JM and the AM from Yom NCSY at Latrun. Friday's JM and the AM with the NCSY summer programs in Beit Meir. Uh, we will be visiting the Barkan Winery. That'll appear during the Thursday live lunch. And of course, Sunday we are back for the Big Hask Experience Day up in Parksville, New York, as Camp Hask has invited us and certainly invites you to be part of Camp Hask Experience Day this coming July the 29th, which is a week from Sunday. And we are very, very much looking forward to that visit, to say the least. Um, all right, so uh, make sure to be to make sure to be part of the uh, broadcast uh, and join us. Those of you who would like to send a shout-out either to our friends at NCSY, if you know a staff member or a camper, who are part of the NCSY summer programs. Uh, or if you want to send a shout-out up to Camp Hask, uh, which is also a um, an option, all you have to do is um, send us an email, nachum at nachumsegel.com, nachum, N-A-C-H-U-M, at nachumsegel.com. Send us the email. And... Um, Put in the subject line, shout out NCSY or shout out Hask. That's all you got to do. Shout out NCSY, shout out Hask. And that's it. You're all set. Um, and we'll include it, Bezrat Hashem, in our broadcast on um, during our journey to Israel for NCSY and our journey to Parksville, New York uh, for Hask. So just put in the subject line, shout out Hask or shout out NCSY, and we'll be all set with that, and um, we will do our best to include it in the program. Nachum at NachumSiegel.com is the email. Again, it's Nachum at NachumSiegel.com. That is the email address. All right, so that's some of the things that are going on. Tomorrow we'll spend a lot more time talking about the uh, programming that's coming up. We have some guests who will join us, including Charlie Harari and others, who will help us uh, talk about what's going to be happening Tisha above and beyond. I certainly hope you'll join us. Achenu Israel and Achim Achim, our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. A reminder in between the programs that we're going to be presenting on Tishabov, don't forget, 
that on Tisha B'Av day, on Sunday, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall in Manhattan starting at 2 p.m. Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. Bring your talis and tefillin. Mincha at the Isaiah Wall starting at 2 p.m. That's 43rd Street, 1st Avenue, New York City. 1st Avenue at 43rd Street in New York City. Make sure to uh, join us again. Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, 1st and 43rd, 2 p.m. on uh, on Sunday. Make sure to bring your talis and tefillin. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Until tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.